people think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. Well, welcome to another episode of Kidney Talk. We have Ellen Shookman with us today. She's a clinical program coordinator, and she handles the Kidney Living Donor Program at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. And, you know, living donation is such an amazing gift that somebody gives to another person. And Ellen is here to tell us how she, uh, you know, works with living donors and how um, she educates them. So welcome to the show, Ellen. Hi, Lori. Thank you for having me. Ellen, tell us a little bit about the Living Donor Program at Cedars-Sinai. Um, I'm actually very excited to talk to you about that because I have been with Cedars-Sinai since 2004, and this has kind of been my, my work in progress. Um, I think in, in order to understand living donation, most patients have to really understand what is transplantation, and that is a surgical procedure in which a deceased organ, in this case the kidney, is replaced with uh, in one person by a healthy organ donated by another person. And the donor kidney may either come from a living or a non-living donor. In this case, we are discussing uh, an organ coming from a living donor. So can you explain a little bit about how people have two kidneys and, you know, when they donate a kidney, what basically happens to their body? Um, Normally what happens is most of us are born with two um, healthy kidneys, which together uh, give us healthy kidney function. And the interesting part is that when one of the kidneys uh, is either not there or not functioning, the other kidney is able to take over the function. It's almost like a perfect marriage. When one partner is not carrying their load, the other partner kind of takes over. So in the situation where um, a living donor donates one of their organs, the remaining organ slowly expands their capacity, sometimes grows in size, and is able to provide healthy kidney function that will sustain that individual for the rest of their life. When somebody wants to donate a kidney to a friend or a family member, uh, what's the process? Um, is there a number that they call? And walk us through the process if somebody listening wants to donate a kidney. So the first thing that I think any individual that wants to donate uh, their kidney needs to do is they need to start to kind of slowly educate themselves about what it really means to be a living donor. They have to talk to their family members because they will need a support network around them. And once they've made a decision to go ahead, they will need to contact the uh, centers in their area. Uh, if it's Cedars-Sinai, you're welcome to call our team. And uh, they have to step forward voluntarily. So usually the living donor makes the first contact. Once they contact the center, they'll be asked to basically complete an admission part of the, pro- uh, the program where they will complete a medical history questionnaire. Some programs will ask them to provide blood pressure readings to screen for any type of high blood pressure or hypertension. Um, And if they are an altruistic donor, meaning they are donating just out of the goodness of their heart, and they may have a specific recipient in mind, or they may be willing to donate to anyone, our program asks them to provide a letter of intent explaining why it is that they want to be a living donor, uh, talking about what their motives are, what they hope to gain out of the process. 
they complete that initial part, then, um, and if they're approved and there's no issues identified in their initial uh, paperwork, then they're asked to complete an actual clinical evaluation. So one of the things that I think a lot of patients don't understand is that uh, I always say, one of the things I tell patients is that when people are asking you about it, say, oh, well, you know, if you want to be considered a potential living donor, here's the phone number to call, or here's the uh, website. Because I, I think a lot of patients who need a kidney, you know, they don't understand that they can't make the first move. You're correct. Um, I, we frequently have recipients that call and say to us, um, you know, I have a cousin that wants to do this. Can you please contact them? Um, reality is, is that we cannot make that first call. It, it, the individual has to make the first connection because if we were to call that person, it would possibly be considered us uh, influencing their decision. So really, the individual has to make that first step. Once they've met the first connection, then uh, the program can step forward and proceed with their test. Well, in my case, I was very lucky to have several living donors come forward. And it was interesting because some of the people who, you know, wanted to donate were immediately basically said not eligible to donate. And it was because of, you know, maybe they had a little high blood pressure or some different um, things that happened. So can you explain when you're screening that not everybody's, you know, able to go to the clinical evaluation? Um, that's true. So I think it's important to kind of talk about what what is an, uh, a particular living donor? What, must, what are the considerations that we take in, into account? They have to be someone who is 18 years of age or older. Um, now, the um, exceptions to that rule are individuals who are 70 years or older will be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. Now, the cutoff age varies from, from one center to another. At our center, it's uh, right around 70 years of age. We also um, insist that donors who are under 21 years of age must be related to their recipient or have a very long-standing relationship with that recipient that could be validated and confirmed. Um, we are basically looking to see that there's, that there's a valid motive behind uh, the donation. The individual has to be physically fit, preferably their body mass index has to be 33 or less, and again, that's very program-specific. Each program may have a slightly different approach to it. Um, and body mass index is something that can be easily calculated by doing um, uh, combining height and weight. Uh, they have to be in good general health, free of any uncontrolled hypertension, diabetes. Um, they have, should not be diagnosed with HIV or hepatitis B or C, and they, uh, they should not have active mental illness. We also screen for any type of cancer history. Certain cancers automatically exclude individuals from being living donors. They also have to be free of any kidney or heart disease, including recurrent kidney stones, because that could be dangerous for the individual if they proceeded with a donation. They basically have to be willing to donate a kidney without any monetary gain or psychological coercion on, on their end. And they have to be willing to donate with full knowledge of risks and complications that are associated with the actual kidney donation. Now, if you have a living donor that smokes, would they be excluded? Um, we normally strongly discourage uh, smoking, and we uh, encourage our patients to attempt every possible smoking cessation that there is. It reduces the risks of complication during surgery and long-term uh, complications. So let's say um, they send in the paperwork and they pass the initial test and they're brought in for a clinical evaluation. What kind of evaluation do they go through? So with our 
Center, uh, the, first, the second phase would be their actual laboratory and compatibility tests. They will have uh, blood and urine tests that are done in order to screen for any type of abnormalities. All, those tests will also help us to determine if their kidney function is sufficient for them to be a donor. We're also looking for any type of communicable diseases that could be an issue for both the recipient and the donor. And when I say the recipient, it's the individual who actually needs the kidney. Um, and we're looking to see if there's any problems in any of those tests. Um, if the compatibility tests also do not show any abnormalities, the next phase would be age and disease-related tests. Um, our patients are asked to complete uh, specific age-related tests such as pap smear, colonoscopy, stress test, mammogram. Um, and then if those tests don't show any abnormalities, then we bring them in for the actual clinical evaluation during which they undergo a very detailed education session. They have consultation with all the specialists on our team, and they actually have imaging tests to screen for any type of structural abnormality. And once that is all done, then their entire medical record is presented to our Multidisciplinary Living Donor Selection Committee, who review the information and make a determination whether that individual is uh, suited for donation or not. And so if they're suited for donation, um, then they you can proceed if they're compatible with the recipient, correct? And we are a unique program. We're one, one of few centers across the United States that actually um, takes very special account of the compatibility test. We actually, uh, what's acceptable to us sometimes is not necessarily as acceptable in other centers. We have a long-standing history of, of uh, very good experience of taking care of patients or recipients who are highly sensitized. These are individuals that have had prior sensitizing events that um, cause them to be more reactive to their donors. And we have very unique uh, treatments available for those recipients in order to address uh, compatibility problems. Well, that was me. I had 100% antibodies, and I am a success story of uh, getting a transplant. Um, you know, it was my fourth transplant, and it's been a year, and I'm doing well. So, yes, definitely, you guys do have an edge on dealing with uh, people who have a lot of antibodies. Um, you know, you are the success story, and that's the type of individuals we normally help on a daily basis. We're also very proud of the fact that now our program is fully well-rounded. We have now begun our uh, participation uh, with the kidney pair donation program. And that is another option for our patients where, uh, who have problems with compatibility um, with their donors. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about that. So, you, you know, basically you have a living donor and they're not compatible with you. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that works. Well, um, compatibility is a unique thing in the sense that when we look at someone, um, at someone's compatibility with their donor, we're looking to see if they are blood compatible and tissue compatible. Now, um, for, uh, for our center, uh, blood incompatibility um, and tissue incompatibility is not always necessarily a major issue because we, on a daily basis, perform blood incompatible transplants and we perform transplants for our highly sensitized uh, recipient population. So normally, our first line of approach is to basically take, uh, take a look and see whether the individuals would qualify for our blood incompatible transplant or our highly sensitized program. If the individual's um, issues are not addressed through those uh, avenues, then our next approach would be the kidney pair donation. And what normally happens in kidney pair donation is incompatible pairs um, are, entered, um, are, are looked at in comparison with other incompatible pairs 
to try to put together compatible pairs. I call it dating for kidneys. I kind of jokingly call it the swap because two incompatible pairs could actually swap donors to create two compatible pairs. Or you could have a situation where you do a domino transplant uh, where our altruistic donors may come in, they may start the process, they would donate to the first recipient in an incompatible pair, and that individual's donor would then uh, donate to another recipient, and so on and so forth. And those type of situations can mean that not one individual is helped or two individuals are helped, but it could be multiple individuals. And the chain could either be ended by having the last donor donate to someone who on our deceased donor pool, or, uh, or in the waiting list, I should say, or it could be used, uh, that donor can be used to start another chain. Well, you know, what's interesting is that we have a couple of different interviews on this topic, which will link to this show, which with Dr. Raphael Villacana, Dr. Stanley Jordan, and uh, Garrett Hill talks about those three different issues. So we'll make sure that everybody can learn about the different topics about compatibility and um, when you have high antibodies. So we have different shows on that, those topics. Well, tell us a little bit about, so I decide to be a living donor, I sign up, and how long does the evaluation take? Um, on average, an evaluation can take about two to four months, give or, give or take a few weeks. Um, it has a lot to do with the availability of the actual donor. It has a lot to do with the results that we are obtaining as we proceed through the evaluation. And what also makes it a little bit more complicated is if you have more than one individual stepping forward to be tested. Because at our center, what we normally do is we do preliminary screening to identify which individual would be the, uh, the front runner when it comes to compatibility. And then that living donor will proceed through the rest of the evaluation. So in order to get to the step where we identified the preliminary front runner, we have to get everybody to the same finish line. And then we can kind of identify which individual is the most compatible to their chosen recipient. So in my case, I had four living donors that were basically... Uh, perspective, uh, excuse me, in my situation, I had four living donors that met the evaluation criteria, but they had different stages of getting to the finish line. So it did, it took a little bit longer. And then you rank them, which ones were uh, uh, the best match for me. And it was interesting, but the first person who was the best match, uh, you found some medical issues in the final screening which um, ruled him out. And so you went to the second one, um, which was great because they you, you ended up identifying some health issues that may have ended up saving his life in the future. I always jokingly tell my patients that um, if you believe in God, God works in mysterious ways. Um, it's just I, I've had situations where uh, people haven't had a physical in many, many years. They decided to be a living donor. They came forward had very complex tests performed, and unfortunately, we identified medical problems. However, the fortunate fact is that if they hadn't stepped forward, they never would have known that they had a major illness. By saving a life, they saved their life. (laughs) Exactly. And the other thing I always tell my donors is as the process goes along, if for any reason they are ruled out or deemed unsuitable to be living donors, Um, You know, I I always say that something happens where if one door closes, another one opens. I truly believe in that. And I've seen it in my long time here that if one donor is ruled out, something farther down the line happens where in the end we are still able to have a happy ending. Well, Ellen, I modified that statement when I was waiting 
Um, I said, when one door closes, another one opens, but it's hell in the hall. <laughs> it's hard waiting. <laughs> uh, so tell a little bit about how insurance works, because one of the questions is, is who pays for all of the screening? Um, that's actually a very good question. Um, most uh, of the evaluation, um, testing, and uh, hospitalization is actually covered by the recipient's insurance. So anything related to the actual evaluation will, in the end, be covered by the recipient's insurance. And I think that's really uh, surprising to people because I hear a lot of times from patients in the community or their family members, I don't have, you know, insurance or I can't go be tested. And it's, there's a lot of misinformation about that. So it, it's very important to realize that the, the recipient's insurance takes care of it. However, we do strongly encourage our living donors to make every effort to have um, health insurance because if there are any, any issues in the long run, we really want to make sure that they're well protected. Um, more importantly, if the living donor is an altruistic donor um, and they don't have a specific recipient that they're donating to, it is our program policy to actually require them to have health insurance. Yeah, it's important, I mean, to have health insurance and, and hopefully uh, some of the new health care reform will allow more people to have access to health care. Absolutely. I think the one thing that donors need to be aware of is that once you go ahead with your donation, you could possibly have insurance companies um, uh, consider you as having a pre-existing condition, which may create issues if you were to upgrade or purchase um, a new insurance policy. And that's something that uh, you know, donors have to strongly consider before they proceed with their donation. Because that may mean that you have a higher premium or some insurance companies may, may not insure you. You know, it's, it's such a crazy thing because I'm like, what is the condition? I mean, when you have your tonsils removed, um, do you have a condition? It's an interesting, you know, a conversation. And I've been in uh, conversations with my local state senator to potentially, you know, remedy that in the state of California. I would love to see laws enacted which protected um, individuals who are, you know, doing something just out of the goodness of their heart. I, I think it's important that living donors um, have certain protection and certain rights. So, I, you know, I, I thank you for actually, uh, you know, lobbying on their behalf. Yes, I'm, uh, I, I'm getting close. <laughs> I'll be calling you to help me. Absolutely. So once you have the surgery, talk about the different options that there are for surgery. So um, there are uh, basically two major options that are available to living donors, and they include a, include a traditional open approach or a less invasive laparoscopic approach. There are advantages and risks to each procedure, and each donor basically needs to discuss each option with their surgeon. It is our preference to perform most of our donor surgeries via the laparoscopic life donor nephrectomy, which is the laparoscopic and uh, minimally invasive approach. So basically you stick like three holes in, and it's not the big incision. It's more of, you know, this is really crude, and I don't know how to say it, but it kind of like pulls the kidney out, right? It's basically what the surgeons do. They basically make three to four small incisions, where the laparoscopic instruments and the miniature camera is placed in. Um, and then what they do is the kidney is removed through a, uh, one incision, which is approximately three inches long, made right at the bikini line or, in some patients, right above the belly button. And the kidney is basically removed through that incision. So how long is the recovery after surgery? Uh, most patients are hospitalized for approximately 24 to 48 hours, and at our institution, it's not uncommon for patients to go home in the first 24 hours 
if they meet our discharge criteria, meaning they're stable, healthy, not having any, any uh, complications. And uh, most individuals are uh, can return to work and regular activity in approximately two weeks. However, we strongly encourage our patients to not lift anything over 10 to 15 pounds for the first four to six weeks following the surgery because we want to prevent incisional hernias from developing. Yeah, my sister, you know, she went home. We had the surgery on Friday afternoon, and she went home on Sunday, and she was at Starbucks on Tuesday. Yes, and that's not an uncommon situation. I know. She did really well. And, uh, you know, she's doing well a year out, and I'm doing well, and it's it's an amazing gift. Can you tell us a little bit about possible complications? Because I think, you know, living donors really need to be fully aware of those. So um, there are possible complications uh, related to the living donor surgery, and they include pain. Um, You definitely will be experiencing some pain initially after the surgery itself. Um, but that pain should slowly ease up and improve um, as you continue to recover. Uh, there is a possibility for wound infections. Um, as, as our institution is extremely, uh, we have very low infection rate, and we're very proud of that. I can't recall the, lo- you know, the last time I've had to uh, talk to an individual about a wound infection. Um, surgical scars uh, are something that will definitely be there, but they fade in time. Um, there is a possibility of an incisional hernia, However, we strongly encourage our patients to be careful when lifting things for the first four to six weeks while they're recovering. And an incisional hernia, if it does develop, is something that is correctable just through a different procedure. Um, There is an increased risk for pneumonia, blood clots, uh, bleeding, requiring transfusion, but I can tell you that it's extremely rare that our patients would would ever require transfusion. Um, Because uh, it's an invasive procedure, there's also a risk for uh, pulmonary embolus, which is a blood clot in the leg. Uh, There could be uh, side effects that are associated with the allergic reaction to the anesthesia, but those are very rare. Uh, Biggest complaint that I've had patients um, give me is uh, being nauseous after the surgery. There is a possibility for nerve damage because it is a closed laparoscopic surgery. Um, I've had a few patients complain a little numbness or tingling around the incision, Uh, but again, most of these situations uh, should resolve in time. Um, we have, there could be a little bit of fatigue as the patient recovers from the surgery. And, of course, there is always a situation with death. Um, uh, there's about 3 in 10,000 chance, United States-wide, that um, uh, there could be a fatality to a living donor. I'm happy to report, knock on wood, that at our institution we've never had a fatality with any of our living donors. I hear one of the biggest side effects is that, you know, it's hard to have a bowel movement. And, you know, it's probably not the the nicest topic to talk about, but it's a reality. And because you're getting all the pain medication and it slows the system down. And I know for a lot of people who are uh, living donors, they haven't been sick a lot. <laughs> and and so they don't really, you know, that's like a regular to me. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm expecting this. But that is one thing I don't think they always suspect. Well, we frequently tell our patients that um, to start out with, Prior to the surgery, they will undergo a bowel prep, which basically will help to clean out their bowels so they're not an issue when the uh, laparoscopic approach is used. Um, so they're, they're basically uh, having a bowel prep. They're eating, very, they're eating clear liquids before the surgery. Then after the surgery for the first 24 hours, again, they're still on clear liquids, slowly progressing their diet. They're not moving around as much as they normally do. Um, they, uh, so, and then they're taking narcotic medication. That could be a lethal combination. 
And as their body slowly recuperates, their bowels do so as well. But it does take time. To reduce the chances of constipation, uh, what we normally give our patients is a stool softener. And we strongly encourage them to start uh, moving around um, and uh, start getting fluids into their system and minimize the use of uh, pain medications, specifically narcotic medications, if the need is not uh, there, uh, if the need is not as strong. And so all those things together will hopefully help reduce the chances of constipation in the long run. But you have to remember, with laparoscopic surgery, uh, there is an issue of some bloating and discomfort, which takes a few days to slowly overcome. And that kind of contributes to the overall condition of the donor. I know it is. It's a, you know, seeing somebody progress every day after living donation is it moves pretty quickly. But when you're in the moment, you feel pretty, uh, um, you don't feel that great at, in the moment. <laughs> and I always remind my donors that when you go into the hospital, you know, and you're done with your donation, it is very important that you keep reminding yourself of the most amazing thing that you have done, and that is help your recipient. Um, I tell my patients to bring a change of clothes bring their regular things that make them comfortable. I tell them to get up the next morning, wash their face, put on their makeup, change their clothes. And something about starting kind of your regular routine slowly propels you to start to recover faster. Well, what kind of psychological considerations should living donors think about? Well, I think there are a few questions that donors have to ask themselves. First is, do you feel pressured into being a living donor? Because if you feel like Um, uh, you're not stepping forward voluntarily, this is not the right thing for you. And that's something that you definitely need to talk to your coordinators about because we can assist you in in dealing with that situation. Um, The patients also have to ask themselves, um, do they feel like their recipient's last hope? We know that living donation is a great option, but it's not the only option for recipients. Uh, They have to ask themselves, how will they feel if the kidney doesn't work or is rejected by their recipient's body, which are valid things that could occur um, because we need to work through those uh, issues. How will they feel if their relationship with their recipient undergoes any type of changes, whether they be positive or negative? In my uh, tenure here at Cedars, I have seen amazing things happen. I've seen relationships become stronger. I've seen boyfriend and girlfriends become husbands and wives. But I've also seen situations where their relationships um, did not progress as expected. Individuals, you know, uh, didn't um, stay as close as they expected. And so I think I always tell my patients, if you go into this process with realistic expectations, you'll come out probably very satisfied with what you've done. And then uh, the other thing is that I've had some individuals um, experience a little distress following the donation due to uh, either because they uh, were ruled out as a donor and or denied the ability to go ahead with the process, um, or the end of their donation process is there, and there's a little bit of a letdown after the big, long, planned event. Um, we've had some individuals where the recipients, uh, God forbid, experience some type of complications. You know, it's difficult for them to recover as, uh, as easily as it is when we have a positive outcome. Well, I know there's one situation of a wife who donated to her husband, and she got kind of upset because she wanted him to eat better and take better care of himself. And I think one of the things that when you donate a kidney, you're donate, you're giving it away. So, you know, although you can be frustrated, you no longer own that kidney. <laughs> Correct. I always tell patients that the ownership of the kidney changes. It is no longer your kidney. 
So you have to be comfortable in knowing that you should not tell your recipient how to take care of your organ because it is no longer yours. And you will have very little control over what happens to your organ once you donate it. And so you have to be comfortable with that. Because if you don't, it will unfortunately interfere with your relationship. And it'll make you crazy at the same time. <laughs> well, uh, are there any financial concerns that um, living donors should consider? Well, um, outside of the fact that, uh, of course, there's that possibility of being uh, discriminated against after they uh, donate, um, there have been a few patients that have experienced employment issues following the donation, possible loss, or uh, the, it could, the donation could impact their ability to obtain future employment. That usually applies to individuals in law enforcement, military, and government positions. So when considering whether you want to be a living donor, I think it's important to find out if this could uh, possibly interfere with progression um, in, in a, in a uh, company. So why can't you be a policeman? Uh, well, it's not so much a policeman, but I've had very special, uh, special situations where someone is part of a very special task force, and sometimes that could possibly interfere. Um, I think each individual in those unique positions has to talk to their employer to see if this is something that could be a problem. So I guess basically if you're a boxer, probably wouldn't be a good idea. You, you have to be extremely careful. We have had prior um, um, professional athletes donate their kidneys, but uh, they take major precautions to make sure that the remaining organ is healthy and safe. I know you probably don't want to be a professional skydiver or something like that. Or that if you're going to dive, that you do it before you donate. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and the other thing that I think is important to note is that in the United States, it is illegal for uh, donors to receive financial compensation for donating their organ. Um, individuals who uh, are um, found to break this law can be fined $50,000 fined or imprisoned up to five years or both. And there have been prior donors that unfortunately have been convicted under this law. And it's a felony, isn't it? It's a felony, correct. But in the United States, it is allowable to have the donors be reimbursed by their recipient for their travel, housing, and lost wages related to the donation. There is also a National Living Donor Assistance Program, which helps um, U.S. citizens who do not, uh, with travel expenses and lodging and food, uh, food expenses. Um, usually this program helps those individuals who do not, do not reside uh, locally to their center. So when you're a living donor, uh, what's the follow-up process after the donation? So normally we are required by the United, United uh, Network of Organ Sharing to follow our donors for a period of two years. At our center, we normally see our living donors for a two-week follow-up after the surgery to make sure that there's no complications and that the recovery is progressing as we hope. And if there are no complications or issues identified at that visit, we then ask the donors to come back to see us at six months, at one year, and at two years following the donation. However, we also strongly encourage them to continue their relationship with their regular physician and make sure that they get their regular checkups and appropriate age-related tests. Well, I think one thing that's amazing is, you know, when you have kidney problems, you live and die by your your creatinine. That's your creatinine level. It determines your kidney function. And once you donate a kidney, within a couple of days, your creatinine's normal, right? Um, for most recipients, you definitely see a uh, trend downward in the uh, creatinine level. Uh, some are very lucky, and they see that downward effect happen very quickly. Others take a little bit longer. 
But in the end, all tend to settle in a very comfortable level. Well, as for the donor, though, is the donor's labs impacted at all after surgery? We do see a slight rise in the creatinine of the donor. Um, but uh, in time, by about six months to nine months, we slowly see a reduction in that, and they settle at their new normal creatinine level. So living donation is just the greatest gift. And unfortunately, um, deceased donors in the United States are, you know, kind of flat. They're not growing that much. Um, and living donors are really helping, um, you know, meet the need of people on dialysis, helping them get off dialysis or not need dialysis. Can you tell us a little bit about how living donors are increasing in the country? Well, I think there's different programs out there to try to bring awareness to living donation. Um, and most importantly, our individuals who've been prior donors. For example, at our center, we have something called a buddy list where prior donors are, are willing to sign up so that they can share their stories with future donors so that the individuals get first-hand accounts of how their experience went. So they're not only getting it from, from, the, from me as a specialist in it, but they're getting it directly from the individuals that have done that before. And I think it's very important that donors do utilize those resources to obtain more information about the actual um, donation process. Um, and then, of course, there are high-profile donors that have donated, which, again, brings more light to the actual uh, living donation. And I think uh, a couple of years back, there was a study that came out, and I can't recall the name of it, but it, it showed that people who donate, life expectancy is, is greater than the, the average. Correct. Um, there was a, a very long-term, large study performed which showed that living donors' um, long-term expectancy is actually higher than the national population, which basically, again, proves the point that most living donors do well after the donation. I really believe that I think once you become a donor, you almost become a little bit more hypervigilant about taking care of yourself. And to begin with, to be a living donor, you have to be pretty healthy. And so those individuals are expected to have very good outcomes in the long run. Well, Ellen, I think this has been such an informative uh, kidney talk show and help people understand what, you know, happens if you want to be a living donor and then if you are chosen, you know, what the process is. So I really thank you for sharing all your information. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share something that I just am passionate about. And um, I hope that we will be able to help more people get to the same position that you're in now. I know, I know. I, I mean, I have to tell you, it's the first time in my since I was two years old that I haven't been taking blood pressure medicine. That's how well this kidney is working for me. So I, I'm going to end this by saying that I wish exactly that same uh, situation on everyone who's listening today. Thank you, Ellen. We can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our healthcare team. We can take steps towards self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on our family. We can sing, dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look forward to tomorrow. We can help and support our fellow patients. We can pursue our hopes and dreams. We can make a difference.